This morning's first reading comes from the book of Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities. Give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, which is for those who fear you. Turn away the disgrace that I dread, for your ordinances are good. See, I have longed for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. The word of the Lord. How y'all feeling? Make it through. <laughs> I got this. Uh, our second scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. We are continuing uh, listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Thank God I don't preach this long. Three weeks worth. That was supposed to be funny. Anyway, all right. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, Give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing then for others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. 
I'm curious how many of you successfully navigated Valentine's Day on Friday. Or maybe you chose to celebrate Galentine's Day. That's where women celebrate their female friendships. Or maybe Palentine's Day, if you want to keep gender out of it. No matter how you feel about Valentine's, love it or hate it, <laughs> someone probably wished you a happy Valentine's Day on Friday. It's a day full of pressure to be that perfect partner or friend, to show your appreciation, your love, your gratitude for those you love. It's a day of action, right? It's a day of action where you write a card or a letter, or you share candy or flowers. Or if you were lucky like me, I got to go to a fancy restaurant and then the ballet. It's a day that you spend time with those you love, or at the very least, like. Our text today, as we are still leaning into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is sort of like Valentine's Day on steroids. It's a call to not just show love to those we love, but to show love to those we hate. To turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Really, Jesus? And while Jesus is certainly calling us to a radical love, a courageous love, a love that surpasses even our understandings, we have a tragic history a poor translation of this text, and even worse, bad interpretations that this text recommends becoming a doormat for Christ. It also doesn't tolerate domestic violence, but yet that is how often it has been interpreted. And this passage is tragically misinterpreted because we have first forgotten the original society in which Jesus was given these teachings. When Jesus says, if anyone, he and his listeners knew instantly and exactly who the anyone was. The behaviors Jesus describes, slapping the right cheek, forcing to go the extra mile, suing, were not the kinds of things anyone could do. They were the kinds of things only a privileged few could do and did to the crowds that were listening to Jesus. Jesus is sharing to those who live in an imperial context how to respond to persecution and oppression by outwitting the opponent. 
He is sharing that there are ways of not resisting that actually shames the oppressor and humbles those in power. For example, turning the other cheek was a way to respond to your oppressor. If you're going to hit me again, you're going to do so as an equal. There were socially acceptable protocols. Some included never, ever using your left hand as it was considered dirty. Hitting a subordinate with the back of the hand was twice as offensive and packs a bigger punch. The blow was about asserting status and power over another. So if your overlord has just slapped you on your right cheek and you give him the other, it gives the appearance that you are being meek and servile and obedient while actually you are forcing him to either hit you with the palm of his right hand or using his left hand or walk away. And all three of those responses would make him lose face. And if anyone wants to sue you for your coat, again, this is about the privilege abusing, the privileged abusing the poor. The poor didn't sue the poor. The poor quite literally only owned the clothes on their back. And being sued for your coat would be taking the only thing that you owned. Except for your underwear, a.k.a. your cloak. If there is one thing that hasn't changed throughout the eons, it is the all-embarrassing dream of being caught public in your underwear. It is embarrassing and shameful now, just as it was then. So why not publicly expose the shame which someone with wealth and privilege to take away the only thing a poor person owns by going naked? Give him your underwear. Let him explain why you are naked. And Jesus continues in his examples about going the second mile, a response to being conscripted by soldiers to carry their packs, losing a day's wage. Offering to go a second mile publicly exposes the unjust hardships of being forced to go even one mile. But it does so in a way that seems to cooperate, cooperate while at the same time bring shame and ridicule to the ones doing the forcing. And with the begging and borrowing, this teaching is directed to those who have and not to the have-nots. The effect of this is to break down the customary social barriers between those who have and those who do not have. It changes the social relationship to one of kinship. Jesus is telling us to treat beggars and borrowers as if they were our closest and dearest family. 
And if this were not enough, we are called to love our enemies. But again, a misunderstanding. To love our enemies is not mean, it does not mean to try and feel affection for them. It actually is much harder. It means to be attached to them. To be devoted to them, to be loyal to them, to seek for their welfare and their fair and just treatment. Yikes. Maybe it would be easier to try and merely like our enemies. However, as Jesus points out, God treats God's enemies, the evil and the unrighteous, the same as God's friends, the good and the righteous. Ought we not try to do the same? But I know that we cannot be naive about this. When we react to evil and persecution with this love, it will not be something that magically makes things better. Enemies will not frolic through the fields together. But choosing the path of faith is trusting that there is an alternative way of living and being and that our faith, our relationship with Christ, will have its own way of showing up with justice. As you can tell, and some of you know, I have been sick for most of this week. I have not felt well, and I have been physically unwilling to do much. But I got this idea on Wednesday, thanks to some, uh, a, a little seed planted by our own Terry Cheney, that I wanted some chicken noodle soup. But I didn't have any chicken noodle soup. But I realized, in our rapid response world, I could order groceries online and have them delivered to me. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so that's what I did. And if you order $35 or more, they deliver them for free. Though I would have been happy to pay the $3.99 surcharge on a $1.99 can of soup. <laughs> so I order groceries at 5.30 p.m. And they are delivered to me by about 6.30 p.m which is pretty close to the amount of time that it would have taken me to get dressed, drive to the store, purchase my goods, check out, and drive home. I didn't have to leave the comforts of my house. I didn't even have to leave the comforts of my couch. I just clicked things on the screen and poof, delivered to my door. I didn't have to be vulnerable. I didn't have to engage with anyone. It is not only a sick person's dream, it's an introvert's fantasy. But it did get me thinking. While this online ordering thing has its place, I wondered, 
What is the world going to look like in 10 years? Will we ever have to leave our homes? Will we ever engage with people? Those we like? Those we don't like? Will we develop a self-induced agoraphobia? I know I'm being a bit melodramatic, but we are a society that on many levels is more connected than ever with cell phones and texting and social media and instant news alerts, and yet we are more personally disconnected than ever. We seem to have less time, or at least less time together. I was reading 60 years ago that the average dinner time, like spent together over dinner, was 90 minutes. It is now less than 12 minutes. In the last 20 years, family dinners have declined by 33%. And while there are benefits to social media, its impacts have moved us to focus on relationships based on quantity over quality. And we are losing our ability to read social cues. And you mix this with the fact that the country is working more hours than in previous decades. And this is related both to salaried workers who feel that they need to work more, but also because of the stagnant, stagnant hourly wage, making working more hours a necessity to make ends meet. And while times and technology have certainly changed, it just got me wondering, what does this isolation and extra hours do to the gospel that calls us into community and into action and into vulnerability? We are reminded in this famous sermon that our faith is not something that is passive. It is not a checklist. It is not just belief in something. It is not just about rituals like fasting and almsgiving. God's righteousness is more than just about a personal, private decision in hearts or the balance book. Our faith is to turn, to love, to give, to pray. Our faith is to creatively engage in intelligent resistance that exposes injustices. Our faith is responding to God's grace and love by living out the fullness of our relationship with God. And this is both good news as well as a call to action. Because to turn to love, to give, to pray, to engage, to respond, is action-oriented. It's not just talking about it or theorizing about it or just clicking like. It's not being passive. Faith is not a noun. It is a verb, and it is an action verb. At the end of this text, Jesus says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now I'll cut to the chase. Jesus is not calling us to be flawless or sinless. But Jesus is calling us to be real and faithful and authentic. It is knowing that we are salt and light. It is knowing that you are whole and living completely as yourself and not hiding or shying away and not living passively. So how is our life, how is our community defined by this completedness that we find in God? What does it look like as a community to turn the other cheek? What are we empowered to do? Jesus invites us as individuals, but as community, as the body of Christ, to respond to this invitation.